Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This is episode 32, and it'll be about the opening of the Italian front. I'm going to make this a two-part series, so on the next one, I'll go more into depth about the Battle of Isonzo, one through four. This one will just be about how things came about. Like the Western and Eastern fronts, this too will become another front for the war. The last episode for the podcast was about the Battle of Laws, which ended in October. And if you listen to that episode, which I hope you did, you'll know that I'm going back in time several months to open this up. And this definitely is a big hitter. This isn't a campaign. This is a war, again, on another front, so it deserves a good deal of attention. I don't have any show notes for this episode, so let me just quickly tell you what I'm drinking. Actually, since this is going to be about Italy, I was going to go get an Italian wine. And in fact, I went to go get one probably several hours ago as I'm recording this. And let's just say my day turned into, excuse my language, but a shit show. So I didn't get the Italian wine. Instead, I went into my wife's little wine wine closet and I actually found... Snoop Dogg wine. That's right. 19 Crimes the Cali Red. It's a red blend and uh, it has Snoop Dogg's face on it. I know what you're saying. Snoop Dogg wine. Come on. I'm telling you, if you can get 19 Crimes the Snoop Dogg blend, it's a pretty good bottle. I'm not kidding. And let me go ahead and just uh, pour myself a little bit there. Right. I I wish I can explain how good this wine is, even though it has Snoop Dogg on it. Actually, I could if I was one of them sommeliers, but I'm not. I only know what makes me smile. Just like Don Ho said. What, how does it go? Tiny bubble. All right. Enough of that. Come on. I have a lot to go over, so let me get right into this. I thought long and hard about how to introduce the Italian-Austro-Hungarian front. It needs to be grand because this was a grand war fought on a grand stage. It also needs to be crimson and dreadful because the Italian and the Habsburg soldiers absolutely butchered each other. And I couldn't think of any better way of putting it than the way Mark Thompson, who wrote the book The White War, put it. He lays it out in his introduction perfectly. So I'm going to quote from Mr. Thompson's opening statement regarding the hellish front. And it reads, Some of the most savage fighting of the Great War happened on the front where Italy attacked the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Around a million men died in battle of wounds and diseases or as prisoners. Until the last campaign, the ratio of bloodshed to territory gained was even worse than on the Western Front. Imagine the flat or gently rolling horizon of Flanders tilting at 30 or 40 degrees, made of gray limestone that turns blinding white in summer. At the top, Austrian machine guns are tucked behind rows of barbed wire and a parapet of stone. At the bottom, Italians crouch in a shallow trench. The few outsiders who witnessed this fighting believed that nobody who hasn't seen it can guess what fighting is needed to go up slopes like these. This front 
ran the length of the Italian-Austrian border, some 600 kilometers from the Swiss border to the Adriatic Sea. On the high alpine sectors, the armies lived and fought in year-round whiteness. As on other fronts, the armies were separated by a strip of no man's land. Peering at a field cap bobbing above the enemy trench, an Italian soldier reflected on the conditions that made the carnage possible, saying, We kill each other like this, coldly, because whatever does not touch the sphere of our own life does not exist. If I knew anything about that poor lad, if I could once hear him speak, if I could read the letters he carries in his breast, only then would killing him like this seem to be a crime. End quote. I told you, I couldn't open this any better. Mark Thompson wrote that brilliantly. Hundreds of thousands of men were forced into this war, not even knowing what they were really fighting for. They didn't have a choice. They had to go. And they were told that's the enemy, either kill for your family and country or be killed fighting for it. And it was a lot more complicated than that. So before I jump into this, let me give you a brief history on the Italian front that way things will make sense as I'm going through this. When Italy declared war against the Habsburg Empire in May of 1915, it started on the Isonzo River, which will be called the Battles of the Isonzo. The first four will take place in 1915 and will play in favor of the defending Austrian troops. In fact, not much will really happen. There will be 12 Battles of the Isonzo in total going through 1917. The Isonzo River runs from the north at Plezo, which isn't far from Caporetto, and it's south ending along Monfalcon. This is all in the northeast part of Italy along the Austro-Hungarian border in the Alpine Mountains, or what was then the Austro-Hungarian border. There's also another battle called the Battle of Asiago that takes place in May of 1916 at the Dolomite Mountain Range along the border of Trentino. This is when the Habsburgs go on the offensive, which I'll be mentioning that sometime later on. Italy officially declared war on Germany in 1916, and after the fall of Russia, this will bring some relief to the Eastern Front, and German soldiers will eventually arrive in 1917 for the 12th Battle of Isonzo, also called the Battle of Caporetto. This German offensive will drive the Italians back behind the Piave River. This will also be known as the Great Caporetto Retreat, but that will come, again, just like the Battle of Asiago, that will come much later in the podcast. And I think that's enough to give you a picture of the area I'm talking about. Again, that was just a brief intro to this, and I'll be going into detail as we go along. Italy was a young nation when the Great War started. They had barely unified in 1861. In fact, this was the first unification of Italy since the fall of Rome. But they were also poor despite being rather large. All they basically had was agriculture. They didn't produce steel and certain foods that were a necessity to the people. They depended on Great Britain and France for energy such as coal and other food items. And even though they were unified, there was a big separation of culture from the north and south. In fact, it was common for an Italian from Venice and an Italian from Sicily to not understand each other's dialect. 
The actual Italian language, which was mainly spoken in Florence, is believed to have originated in Tuscany. Italy at the time was also ruled by a monarchy, under King Victor Emmanuel III. He would remain king until his abdication on May 9, 1946. He was also involved with the rise and fall of fascism during the Second World War. He was also a little guy. He stood around five foot. His nickname was Little Saber. Now, because Italy was not a wealthy nation and they weren't really producing any steel, naturally they didn't have a strong, well-organized military. Even though they did just go to war with Turkey during the Italo-Turkish War from 1911 to 1912, and they did manage to liberate modern-day Libya, which ultimately exposed a weakness in the Ottoman Empire, or at least that's what some people thought. Some Italian leaders believed Italy was not war-ready when the Great War kicked off. Now, here's an important piece of information in 1882, Italy joined a triple alliance with Germany and Austria. They were a young nation like Germany. They needed some reassurance that somebody had their back. The alliance went through several revisions years after, but the final one was in 1912, most importantly with the addition of Article 7. Article 7 played a big part in Italy joining the war. Here's how Article 7 reads from the Triple Alliance. And it's, it's like, it's like lead, reading a legal document. It, it's kind of confusing. It's complicated. I was just going to kind of take a piece out, but hell with it. Here's the whole of Article 7. So just be patient with me. Article 7 reads, Austria, Hungary, and Italy having in mind only the maintenance so far as possible of the territorial status quo in the Orient, engaged to use their influence to forestall any territorial modification which might be injurious, injurious, injurious to one or the, or the other of the powers signatory to the present treaty. To this end, they shall communicate to one another all information of a nature to enlighten each other mutually concerning their own dispositions, as well as those of other powers. However, if in the course of events, the maintenance of the status quo in the regions of the Balkans or of the Ottoman coasts and islands in the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea should become impossible, and if, whether in consequence of the action of a third power or otherwise, Austria-Hungary, excuse me, Austria-Hungary or Italy should find themselves under the necessity of modifying it by a temporary or permanent occupation on their part. This occupation shall take place only after a previous agreement between the two powers based upon the principle of a reciprocal compensation for every advantage, territorial or other which each of them might obtain beyond the present status quo, and giving satisfaction to the interests and well-founded claims of two parties. End quote. I told you. It's confusing. It's complicated. But here's why this is important. Under this article, Article 7, if Austria was to go to war with Serbia, Italy should be compensated. 
Italy finds out that Austria gave Serbia an ultimatum leading up to the outbreak of war, but they didn't inform Italy. Italy believed Austria broke the agreement of Article 7, thus allowing Italy to go into a neutral position. Italy would be exempt from any obligations, which put the Italian public in turmoil. Protests were breaking out all over. People wanted to enter the war. There was many people who believed war would solve all problems and bring good to their nation. Italy had to choose a side. And remember, Austrian troops were getting pounded by the Russians. It wasn't looking good for them. Italy had serious doubts, or better put, in what interest is it to Italy to join up with Austrian Germany? At the time, it was looking like there was nothing to gain from that side. Negotiations between the Italian cabinet on how to end the war began during December of 1914. And on April 26, 1915, Prime Minister Antonio Salandra, with the support of Italy's king and other elite industrialists and politicians, committed Italy on the side of the Allies. They officially declared war on the Austrians. Giovanni Giolitti was Prime Minister before Salandra. He resigned in 1914 and persuaded the king to replace him with Salandra. Giolitti had a vision to have Italy become an industrialized nation and bring the left and right together. Even after stepping down, he still held a great deal of power in parliament. This was the time when Italy was focusing on becoming industrialized and building its workforce. They couldn't keep depending on other nations for survival. Giolitti had a lot of influence with labor unions and political parties. He was kind of like a Jimmy Hoffa of his time. But there's one thing Giovanni wasn't. He wasn't for war. He was opposed to having Italy enter into this mess. He felt they weren't prepared for such a thing and believed it was in Italy's best interest to stay out of it. By now, everyone was aware of the dead piling up on the Western and Eastern Front, not to mention the Dardanelles. Giovanni believed this would have a negative impact on Italy becoming industrialized and building up its workforce. All the working men would become soldiers. They would be given a rifle, moved out, shown where the enemy is, and told to fight. And thousands upon thousands would be killed. Of course this would have a negative impact. But even he couldn't stop what was coming. I believe Italy's case for siding with the Allies was simple. The political cabinet outside of Giolitti feared a British naval blockade if Italy joined the Central Powers. Italy depended on Britain and France for raw materials such as food items and coal. And the majority of Italy's coal came from water routes that were controlled by the British Navy. As signed on the 26th of April, the Treaty of London in secrecy stated that in exchange for committing all its resources to fighting the enemies of France, Great Britain, and Russia within 30 days, Italy will receive all of South Tyrol, Trieste, Gorizia, Istria, Dalmatia, down to Trogir near Spalato, plus most of the islands further south to Dubrovnik and Valona. Interesting fact for the time, the areas which Italy was being offered was home to a combined 980,000 
German-speaking Austrians, along with Slovenes and Croats, this outnumbered the 650,000 native Italians. Actually, that's probably not even really interesting. I just threw it out there. The deal was signed and Italy was to be at war by the 26th of May. The Italian soldiers and citizens were dragged into this war by politics, much like how the Ottoman Empire was forced into this war, except they chose the side of the Allies. A disgruntled military colonel wrote in his diary after the war regarding this, saying, This whole war was a heap of lies. We came into the war because a few men in authority, the Dreamers, flung us into it. They could not accept that you don't do politics by dreaming. Politics is reality. You don't stake the future of a nation on a dream, a yearning for reinvigoration. It is idiotic to imagine that war can be the means of healing. End quote. Full military mobilization for the Italians began on the 22nd of May, but was expected to take around 23 days to get the army in full moved out. However, this took twice as long. The army would not be fully deployed until mid-July. At the Lower Isanzo, the Italian Third Army was to capture Montfalcone, a city north of Trieste that lies on the Adriatic Sea. The Middle and Upper Isanzo was given to the Second Army, whose job was to take Caporetto, followed by the taking of the kern Mersley Ridge. Caporetto lies at the northeast part of the Alps in today's Slovenia and is now called Kobarid. Ernest Hemingway talks about the Caporetto retreat in his novel, Farewell to Arms. I'm a big fan of Papa. A Farewell to Arms is one of the greats. Hemingway failed the U.S. enlistment process into the Army due to poor eyesight. He then sailed for Paris, then traveled to Milan to join as a volunteer driving an ambulance for the Italians. He arrived at the Italian front in June and was sent to help recover body parts of females who were shredded apart by a munitions factory explosion. He would write about this in his novel, Death in the Afternoon. On July 8th, he was seriously wounded by mortar fire, yet he still helped with assisting wounded Italian soldiers off the battlefield. He received the Silver Medal of Bravery for this. And then, after the war, life got really interesting for Hemingway, but that's not what this episode is about, so let me get back on track. All right, so the Second Army was in charge of taking Caporetto. The Fourth Army was in charge of occupying a series of towns in the north to pinch off the neck of Trentino. First Cortina, then Toblache, then Brunec. The First Army was to put up a defensive position around the western side of the Trentino salient. In theory, since the Italians joined the side of the Allies, they should have had supporting flanks from the Serbs and the Russians. However, sometimes in theories doesn't mean squat. Serbia was in no condition to support the Italians in the Alps. On top of that, they weren't the biggest fans of the Italians because of Italy's territory ambitions in the Balkans. So they weren't exactly rushing to lend a helping hand. Russia just suffered some serious losses against the Germans. They too weren't ready to offer any support. The Italians were on their own for this one. Now, for 1915 on the Italian front, 
the battles will be focused around the Asanzo, which I'll be getting into, but I want to first focus on the types of soldiers needed for this alpine warfare. Mountaineering has been around since man first was hunting for his food. But in 1857, alpinism hit the golden age when the first mountaineering club was founded. People began to take on mountain climbing as a sport. In 1865, the Matterhorn was successfully ascended. Since the Dolomites and the Asanzo mountain ranges sat between Austria, Hungary, and Italy, naturally on both sides there were many men skilled in mountaineering. The Italians were the first ones to create mountaineering troops called the Alpinis, established in 1872 to defend the northern Alpine frontier from France and the Habsburg Empire after becoming a newly unified nation. This unit is the oldest active mountain infantry unit in the world today. When the Great War started, Austria had its own version of mountaineering soldiers, the Alpen and the Kaiserjäger soldiers, they were just as equally skilled in mountaineering as the Italians, and the Germans had their own, the Alpen Corps. All these mountaineering soldiers were skilled and very physically fit. Most men, and even a lot of soldiers, couldn't survive what these men were trained for. They had a job to get themselves, their provisions, including water, up to the mountaintops in some cases, along with weapons of war, including machine guns and artillery. They were hauling up all this equipment, including animals, by hoisting them up with ropes. It's truly amazing. To give you an idea how tough the job was and how hard it was, the men were eating a 4,000 calorie a day diet because they were burning so much calories. They used animal fat to protect their faces from the wind chill. And they ended up blowing up something around 3,000 kilometers of trenches in the mountains along with blowing caves into the mountains and glaciers. It was easier for them to dig into glaciers rather than the Rocky Mountains, but they did do it to both. I find it fascinating that with human ingenuity of the time along with teamwork, they were able to successfully create trenches and dugouts on a battlefield in the Alpine mountain range. Google search World War I Alpine Warfare in pictures and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There's a picture of a cannon being hoisted up by ropes, for God's sake. I mean, come on, man. It's a cannon on a rope on the face of a mountain. You don't see that every day. Now, take into consideration the weather extremes like the cold. This is a cold on another level. It gets cold outside of winter months in those mountains. Can you imagine what the winter temperatures must have been like? I've been in some freezing weather in the army. Negative 18 was like hard concrete that hit you in the face with a stinging cold. Have you ever been hit with a snowball directly in the mug, but it was more like hard ice? Kind of like that. But the coldest I've ever been was in Chicago during a winter storm. I walked out of a bar probably not wearing the best winter gear. Blood was thin, if you know what I mean. It was painfully cold. I, it was probably in the negatives. I'm gonna say like maybe like a negative five. I mean, you could feel it in your bones. I always thought that was an expression, but no, it's true. I just remember getting hit with this shock and was like, 
oh shit. I wasn't about to walk to the hotel, so I took a cab. I just can't imagine being on the Italian front during the winter. Every day, every minute was like my oh shit moment. There's still frozen bodies up there today. In 2018, because of the changing climate, they discovered a frozen soldier with all his equipment. I'm sure they'll find more. And that's what sets this front apart from the rest. I talk about battles, artillery, machine gun fire, all raining down death and destruction. And it all starts to sound the same. You're just hearing about soldiers slaughtering each other. I like to look for what separates a battle from the rest and what makes it unique. Alpine warfare by far is what makes this front unique. So keep in mind, or try to picture this as I'm talking about the Asanzo and the Italian front. The Great War introduced the world to a, a new style of warfare. You take that, but now add in the Alpine mountains. The Italians and the Austrians who fought and died in this sector were tough as nails. By late May, Italian intelligence reported that the enemy had 8 to 10 fighting divisions on the border. They estimated around 100,000 infantry soldiers were in place, when in fact, there was only about 25,000. I've talked about bad intelligence all through this podcast, and the Italian front is the same broken record. And because of this false report, the Italian army moved at a slow pace to the front line. They were creeping up, not hurrying up. Again, they were well aware of the casualties of war, especially what was going on with the Germans and Russians. They weren't running. They were walking into this at a careful pace. General Luigi Cadorna, the chief of the general staff who was in charge of organizing Italy's unprepared army, wasn't even aware that the Austrians had withdrawn a good portion of its troops behind the border in order to establish a defensive line. There were large sections of the front that were practically sitting undefended. A Habsburg commander in Tyrol reported about the situation on the 20th of May, saying, We are on the eve of an enemy invasion. We have erected a weak line of combat on the border. We have only 21 reserve battalions and seven and a half batteries along a front of some 400 kilometers. All our proper troops are on the eastern front. Only the Trent zone is a bit better fortified and sufficiently garrisoned. I don't know what will happen if the Italians attack. End quote. The Habsburg commanders recognized there was a serious problem approaching, but they were also under the impression the Italians were going to be moving in fast and in full force. And those proper troops, meaning well-trained infantry soldiers, were at Galicia fighting the Russians. The reserve battalions for the Habsburgs, who were about to face the Italians, were mainly laborers that were brought in to construct defensive positions. They were hauled up with picks and axes, worked day and night, thinking, this is all we were brought in for. But then, they were given an infantry uniform and a rifle and were told, now you're going to fight. Think about that situation, not only as a laborer, but also as a Habsburg commander. The Italian front was not only vast and brutal terrain, but also very important pertaining to what's at stake. The fight for territory being the most important. After all, 
this is what these two sides are really fighting for. There's a lot to be lost and gained depending on which way the war will play out. And now, hopes for putting up a good fight lie in reserves who aren't fighting soldiers. They didn't even get any form of infantry training. But don't be mistaken. Almost any man will fight like a wild dog if pushed into a corner and threatened with his life. The vigorous attack that the commander was worried about never happened. Only the Italian 4th Army under General Luigi Nava made any sort of offensive move west of the Isonzo. However, his force was too thin, the way they were dispersed, and failed to make any sort of impact. In reality, at this point, even the Austrian commanders had admitted that if the Italians had an organized army prior to entering the war, and if they would have moved out with a sense of urgency, they could have been in Austria's Puster Valley within days of mobilizing its forces. If they had it together, but they didn't. And that's the key point here. Both Habsburg and German Alpine Corps commanders were in complete shock that the Italians weren't making a move. In some cases, like the Italian 4th Army occupying Cortina, they just sat there for days, and in other areas for weeks before making any sort of an advancement. Because of bad intelligence in the month of May, Italy probably lost one of its greatest opportunities to quickly change the tides of this war. And ultimately, this gave the Austrians ample time to fortify their defensive positions, along with allowing them to finally bring in troops to support this front from Serbia. Going into June, the Austrians would now have 50 to 70,000 soldiers on the Italian front. By mid-June, this number would more than double for the Habsburgs, and still, the Italians outnumbered them almost 4 to 1 for the first month of the war. That alone should confirm the assumption that if they had their shit together, history on the Italian front might have been written differently. Mussolini, after introducing fascism to Italy years after, would go on to say that the Habsburg Empire had several hundred battalions facing the Italians in the Alps in the months of May and June. Both sides were guilty of overinflating the number of opposing troops. And even with that said, it still doesn't take anything away from this war. Both sides did have a vast amount of troops, and a good number of them lost their lives on those mountains. So, overinflating or not, it was still very bloody. In late May, the Italians did manage to make it to the lower river at the Isonzo between Sagrado and Monfalcone, a distance of about 12 kilometers, that's about 7.5 in, in miles. This is where the main attack would take place, but when they arrived, the river was swollen from recent rains and the bridges had been blown. They didn't manage to cross the river until the early morning of June 5th, but what they encountered was a flooded area that the Austrians had purposely created to bog the enemy soldiers down, and it worked. This again gave the Habsburgs more time to fortify their defensive positions. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. Again, this is going to be a two-part series, and on the next part, I'll cover the first four battles of the Asanzo. For this one, I really just wanted to introduce how the Italian front came to be. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
I really had a good time reading and researching this front. If you've been listening to my podcast from the start, you'll know that the Western Front is sort of my bread and butter, but I really do like reading and learning about the Italian Front. I'm really hoping one day I get to visit it. This week's Great War recommendation is going to be a little different. This time, I'm going to recommend a fiction book called Kneeling in the Silver Light by Dean M. Drinkle. Now, you might be saying, why are you recommending a fictitious book to us? This is a history podcast. I get it, but it's a really, really fun read. It's a book that's made up of several short stories about the Great War. Scary stories. Well, I don't know, not really scary. Some might find it scary. I'll call it science fiction. But they are, the, the short stories do have historical time and places about the Great War. I'll say that. Anyways, the book is fantastic. The stories are great. However, this book is not easy to get. I purchased a couple from eBay that I was going to give away on the podcast. Several weeks went by and I'm like, where's my books? eBay ended up canceling the order because the books that they sold me were no longer available. I actually had to get a, my copy through Kindle. That you can easily get, but I'm not sure how you feel about reading from a Kindle. Some people have to have those pages in hand. I totally get that. I just looked on Amazon. It's temporarily out of stock. You'll have to give creative and search around if you want this book. But if sci-fi, maybe horror slash great war history is your cup of tea, then I know you're really going to enjoy this read. If you do get it and you read it, please let me know what you think of it. All right, folks. I want to thank all you listeners for your continued support of the show. You fans are amazing. I love all the positive feedback I'm getting. And as I always say, until the next episode, take care, everyone. <laughs>